The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Wednesday, April the 21st, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. On today's show, we wanted to lift our heads a little bit from the immediate challenges still posed by COVID-19 and the vaccination programme and all the rest of that, and to look a little further ahead to post-pandemic Ireland and what the role of the state should be. It's both a political and an economic question, obviously, although I've never been quite sure where one of those begins and the other one ends. But who better to tease that out than our political editor, Pat Leahy, and economist and Irish Times columnist, David McWilliams. Gentlemen, you're both very welcome. How are you, Hugh? How are you, Pat? Good to see the pair of you, even even if only virtually. Lovely to see you, David. Sweetness and light, I'm sure it will continue those for the rest of the podcast. Um, now... I'm hoping today that we can focus today on the future, but in order to do that, I do think we kind of need to set out the history of some of this. So I am going to try and do that in my own idiot's guide way as succinctly as possible. I probably get a couple of things wrong along the way, but here goes. For a few decades, the prevailing orthodoxy among mainstream economists and political parties alike generally held that to ensure a healthy economy, you had to do a number of things. You had to have a a system of strong and often independent central banks, which controlled the money supply and which used interest rates as a way of regulating the temperature of the economy to keep inflation at bay. And alongside that, there was a political imperative for governments to balance their budgets as much as possible, or at least to keep control of their deficits so that they wouldn't spin completely out of control in the event of a major economic shock. And then in 2008, those theories collided with the brick wall of the economic crash and the subsequent Great Depression. And those policies prescribed under that economic orthodoxy, what many people now call austerity in countries, including Ireland, kind of led to a political backlash which took the form of a populist revolt against elites, but also, I think it's fair to say, a shift in the centre of gravity of economic thinking. And then, of course, the pandemic came along and that saw governments around the world essentially moving to an emergency wartime footing where traditional concerns about deficits were just thrown overboard in the interest of saving countries from the devastating effects of lockdowns. But now, as we look towards this autumn and beyond, the the question is re-emerging about whether those old orthodoxies about balanced budgets and deficit spending and all of that are going to reassert themselves, or whether we have entered a brand new paradigm for governments where inflation is a very distant concern, where money is cheap to the point of being almost free, and where governments, including our own, should just take that opportunity to rebalance and to reinvest, perhaps on a massive scale. Pat, I read with interest a column that you wrote in mid-February, and I quote, at one point in it, you said that uh, someone's got to pay, and that is a fact that everyone, government, opposition, public and lobby groups, won't be able to avoid forever. Is that absolutely true in the environment I've just described? Well, the truth is, Hugh, I, I don't know, as because as we know, predictions are difficult, especially about the future. But I don't think in this country that we will continue to be able to run large current deficits and add steadily to the size of the national debt, which started at the pandemic at about 200 billion, assuming the pandemic finishes 
sometime this year or its effects um, are, 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 you know, are not still being felt in uh, as they are now anyway by this time next year we'll finish at about 250 billion so i don't think we could say over the coming years double that to 500 billion i would be amazed if the external conditions would enable that to do it so i think it's important and we've discussed this before to look at the you know the explosion in borrowing uh, at the moment and the explosion in public spending that is taking place in ireland at the moment and disaggregate the two parts of that say if you take for example the health budget, which increased by about €4 billion Euros this year, €2 billion of that to pay for pandemic-related costs, €2 billion that is related to spending. That's not directly uh, attributable to the pandemic. I think the model being operated in government at the moment is that the first two billion of that goes on to the national debt and is rolled over and hopefully eroded by growth over a long period of time. But the other two billion of it will have to be paid for through taxation or spending cuts elsewhere over a period of time. So by the time you get to the end, perhaps, of this government, that you will be looking at something like a balanced budget over the the governmental or economic cycle. I I think that is the thinking in government uh, at the moment. And I think what you have to do is assess this as not just a matter of economic theory, but the constraints that will be on any Irish government uh, in the future, which is affected by a whole range of international factors, such as what the ECB policy is, what the EU's fiscal policy is, and uh, and what the the you know the broader economic orthodoxy is. And we might come to those questions about the, about what the EU might do, you know, in a, in in a couple of minutes. But David, maybe to you first. Is Pat right? Just in that very specific example he gave there. So there's four billion on health. Two billion we know is directly pandemic related. So that hopefully will need to be wound down because they won't need to do those things anymore. The two billion is new additional expenditure. And in order to continue doing that in the years to come, it does seem like common sense that that'll have to be that that additional finance will have to be raised to pay for that two billion. Is that right? Well, that's the interesting thing about using the expression common sense, Hugh, when it comes to economics, because economics has been unfortunately hijacked by accountants who believe that there is a very hard balance sheet in a monetary union like the European Union or in a monetary arrangement like the United States. And it stems from Mrs. Thatcher's idea that, you know, uh, it's a household balance sheet and you can only pay spend taxpayers' money. And the interesting thing is, there is no such thing as taxpayers' money, right? This is the first thing, right? That what actually happens in economies is economies, governments spend money first and then they tax. So it's not as if, for example, take your, your worry about, uh, and we'll go on, I mean, there are constraints, so don't, 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 don't think, but it's, it's this idea that, you know, where will we find the money from, right? This is always the question. As if uh, it's like a giant Easter egg hunt and that the money is, bar, you know, bar, bar, somewhere it's hidden, right? And that's up to this politicians to go around and find this. And lo and behold, it's a big treasure hunt for kids and we find the money and then we can legitimize spending. That's actually not how the economy works at all. What actually happens, as we've seen this year, is the government spends money first and then attacks second, right? And as long as we understand that, that what actually happens is the state, in this case, this pandemic, but we can go back because I actually think what I'd like to talk about, I think we're at the beginning of a new super cycle in economics. I try to look at uh, economics in big historical swathes. And I think we were, we ended, we are at the end of a super cycle that started in the 1980s under 
Ronald Reagan and Paul Vocker in the United States. It is over now. And that is unambiguous. You know, Keynes said something very, very funny, and I think it's perfect. It's just, he said, it's sometimes much harder to escape from a bad idea than to imagine a good idea. Okay. And sometimes we spend a lot of our times trying to escape bad ideas. And it's very, very clear that the orthodoxy in economics, as I've been saying for a long, long time, this is the orthodoxy that, number one, didn't spot the boom in Ireland, okay, at all. And then it's the orthodoxy said that, when, well, when we do QE after the boom in Ireland, that we will have inflation, and we've had none. So on these, the, the interesting thing with the orthodoxy, it's been so wrong that it's amazing that it's given any legitimacy as a, a way of looking at the world. But let's come back to the idea of where money comes from. This is the interesting thing, that uh, Mrs. Thatcher's worldview was that there was such a thing as taxpayers' money. And the taxpayer owned this money and it had nothing to do with the state. Now, that is obviously clearly nonsense because the state actually prints the money. OK, so the money actually comes from the state in the first place. Right. And the taxpayers are allocated a certain amount of it. But so, too, are lots of other parts of the economy. So what I would say is we've got to be a little bit more precise in our understanding of how monetary economics works. Right now uh, at the central bank, the ECB, the European governments are going to the ECB, European Euro members, with IOUs, okay, which is, uh, I will IOU 100 billion, 5 billion or 1 billion or 2 billion. And at the discount window of the ECB, uh, the ECB is actually giving them money, right? And the ECB is saying, not only are we going to give you money, but we're actually not going to charge you for this. And uh, why are we not going to charge you for this? Because we understand that at zero interest rates, which is where we have got to, now, zero interest rates, Hugh, are a sign that something's not working. They're not a good sign, right? At zero interest rates, monetary policy, as uh, defined by the orthodoxy, which is that we cut interest rates and we expand the economy or we raise interest rates and we contract the economy, doesn't work because interest rates are at zero. So clearly it doesn't work. So in the words of Jay Powell, the American Fed president, the Fed can lend, but it cannot spend. And it's exactly the same case with the ECB. The ECB can lend, but it cannot spend. Now, for the last 10 years, the ECB has been lending to the wrong people, which is why we have asset price inflation and no actual wage inflation. Wage inflation, by the way, is a good thing. It's quite good for people's wages to increase. That's, that's the assumption we should start at for a successful economy is high wages, which is why Switzerland has high wages and Bakuna Faso has low wages. But Switzerland's successful and Bakuna Faso is not successful. So our, our, our end game should be high wages, right? So let's recalibrate the whole thing, right? What I think is happening is the orthodoxy that prevailed since Paul Vocker, who actually timely enough passed away last year. So it's a, there's a nice symmetry in, in, in the lifetime, uh, was one where we will bias all economic policy towards deflation, crushing inflation. And in so doing, what we will do is we will create a boom for asset price owners, and we will actually create quite a difficult almost recessionary-like uh, background noise for wage earners, which is basically what has broadly happened in the Western world. And that, of course, ends up with asset price, inflation's booms and busts. We've had our own. Uh, and obviously, you know, eventually, when you actually favor profits over wages for too long, the people who earn wages, the workers get pissed off and they vote for lunatics like Brexit or, or Trump or whatever, because those guys say, you know what, we're going to take back control from you. So, it's important now for us to think of what is the new paradigm? What is it? What are we dealing with? 
we're dealing with a world at zero interest rates, which is in itself a function of a variety of things. One of the things in Europe is our demographic structure. We're an old continent. Old people save more. And as a result of that, you tend to have much lower rates of interest. So you think, okay, well, how do we get the economies going? How do we actually, how do we, how do we get things going if monetary policy doesn't work? Which it doesn't, which is why lots of money is trapped in the banking system. And the Irish banking system has turned into basically a safe deposit box for the middle classes, right? It's not actually anything that it used to be, which is pumping money around, yada, yada, yada. So now you think, so where do we go from here? And this isn't me talking. This is actually Philip Lane, the former central bank governor, chief economist of, of, of the ECB. He's basically saying to the rest of the European countries, look, we're going to buy everything that isn't nailed down. Okay, it's going to be very, very clear to me that Christine Lagarde wants to finance a European Green New Deal through central bank financing alone. And I think what we've got to do is we've got to escape the tyranny of a bad idea and embrace the fact that we're going into a new way. In the same way, Hugh, as, for example, between 1860 and 1914, we had the gold standard, we had massive emigration, we had a corporate estate. Between 1920 and 1940, we had the emergence of hyperinflation, then depression, and the emergence of Keynesianism. Then between 1945, 1946, and 1970, with this mixed economy, which was, again, half monetary, half fiscal. Then between 1980 and 2020, we had this crush fiscal policy and use monetary policy, and now that's over. And we start again. And so then the question is, uh, how does that manifest itself? It's very clear to me that the European Union is not going to, and this is a tricky thing for the European Union, the European Union is not going to signal, or the ECB is not going to signal that it's going to stop financing governments. And the reason is the following, right? If it decides that it's going to reinstate all these silly rules about Maastricht and all the stuff that they, they talk, talk about sometimes over at, uh, over at uh, Marion Street, I think, right? You have a immediate Greek, Spanish, and Italian debt crisis. Okay, you have it immediately. Are we really going to go back there to that nonsense? Are we really going to try and destroy the euro in order to stick to an orthodoxy that has changed? Because that's what's going to happen. If, for example, the ECB uh, says uh, under the, I, I mean, I'm not too sure, is it the finance committee, Pat? Who, who makes those decisions? What, what, what's the one that Pascal's on? What's it called? The Eurogroup. Eurogroup, okay. These, these, these heroes, right? If, for example, they decide to say, um, we're going to go back to the Maastricht Treaty and we're going to go back to uh, debt GDP ratios of 60%, and we're going to assume that government deficits go back to 3%. You know what actually happens? Italy implodes. You get massive capital flight from Italy. You've got the end of the euro, right? Are we going to decide that we're going to end the currency that we use because of some sort of orthodoxy that has not only passed, but, you know, Joe Biden is now so far ahead. I mean, the, the Americans have completely embraced this new world, right? The Americans have totally embraced this new world what is happening now is that Biden is goes to the Fed. Well, Yellen goes to the Fed and says to Jay Powell, listen, Jay, we need about $2 trillion. And Jay goes, all right, no sweat. Uh, what, what, what accounts would you like um, credited? And she goes, well, we're going to build bridges. We're going to build this. We're going to build all the, all the above. He goes, cool. Okay. This is the new world, guys. You have to drill down to the, the price 
of the old orthodoxy is the implosion of Spain, Italy, and Greece as members of the euro. Is that what we want? Okay, listen, I, I, all very interesting. Obviously, there's a huge amount in there, but you know, as the wise man said, that's all very well in practice, but what does it mean in theory? For a government in Ireland uh, proposing a policy over the next five years, let's say, does that mean that you open the spigots, that you go back, that you look to raise as much money as you can and you spend billions and billions and billions on lots of things, which lots of people would like to see? Of course it does. Of course it does. And the great thing about having zero interest rates now is you get the money in now at zero interest rates, okay? I mean, this is, guys, so, so, so un- unless and until the rate of interest rises profoundly to the positive, four, five, six, seven percent, the implication of everything that's happening now is if you have a housing problem, you fix it with public money. If you have a railway problem, you fix it with public money. If you have a deficit in your in various different things. Now, what Pat is talking about is something quite different, I think, which is to the extent to which we have quantity surveyors in the Department of Finance that can get value for public money, that can actually build a children's hospital on time, right? That's a quite a different question. That's a question of site management, not macroeconomic theory, right? Or not macroeconomic uh, orthodoxy shifting. That now I can't answer. And I actually back away from that. Well, let me actually, let me, Pat, Pat, let me just frame that to you. And I will absolutely give you the, the option to respond. Is it possible that if there's a certain conservatism, or maybe phrase another way, a, a lack of acceptance of, of David's broad point in the Department of Finance, that might be because of a lack of faith in that department, in the ability of the state to actually spend that money wisely and well? Oh, I'm well, look, perhaps, yeah, there is an institutional conservatism in the Department of Finance. There probably is in all treasuries, some of that born by experience, some of it born out of, I suppose, the culture of the place. I mean, I think there's a lot there's a lot to interrogate in what David says, you know, I mean, is the suggestion, which I think it is, is that large current deficits will continue to be run in the EU and will be financed by the ECB to the extent that, you know, say in the case of Ireland, obviously in case of Italy, Greece, Spain, David, of course, is a lot older than I am. So he would know that people have been talking about the uh, the impending Italian collapse for a long time. Uh, but but is the suggestion then, I wonder, David, that everyone will continue to run large deficits and therefore accumulate debt Ad infinitum. No, no, because, uh, well, the first thing to appreciate is that the COVID-related deaths are probably largely cyclical, okay? And this, is, this goes back to, you know, old-fashioned Keynesian automatic stabilizers. This is not, this is not a new thing, that uh, when the economy... Basically, what you have is, right at the moment in Ireland, the private sector has, not in Ireland, but all over the world, has saved enormous amounts of money during the pandemic, right? So obviously, when you save, the money comes out of the economy, Right, it goes into it's, it's, it goes into a safe deposit box. When money comes out of the economy, unless you want the economy to implode completely, you have to replace that demand with something else. So this, the government spends. I mean, this is not uh, ideology. This is just the way it works. And then the question I think you're worried about is how much of that extra spending, when the cycle kicks in, uh, is inherited debt that actually begins uh, to accumulate. And then would we end up in a situation? where uh, there would be a speculative attack on the Irish bond market uniquely that would drive Irish interest rates way up 
and suddenly you're in a sort of a debt deflation scenario. And what I'm saying to you is that that was definitely the orthodoxy in the past. And I think it was something to be very worried about. And we experienced that type of dynamic maybe four or five times over the past 40 years in this country. Okay, starting in the early 80s, then the late 80s, then in 1992, we had a currency crisis with a bit of that, then with the banking crisis, then with the, you know, all, so we've, we've seen that the way that movie plays out. Okay, what I'm saying now is that it's not pleasant for, for anyone. And I think, you know, we, we spoke about the conservatism of the Department of, of, uh, of Finance, which in some respects, I suppose, prevents them maybe from seeing, you know, with the clarity that David was the new paradigm. But it also... Can I just answer you, the Department of Finance policies called, caused all these crises, frankly. So let's, let's be very, very, very clear about cause and effect, okay? So these are not innocent bystanders in this game. What I'm saying is the world has changed profoundly. And I think the financial markets are kind of looking at the ECB and they're saying, really? Do you want to go back to another crisis? Because if you tell us that... Ireland, Italy, well, not Ireland, Italy, Germany, France have got to reduce their budget deficit to zero tomorrow. Is that what you're telling us? And we'd say, oh, uh, yeah. Okay, well, in that case, we sell their bond market. So you're saying to us that you want to precipitate a crisis in your own currency? So do you see what I mean, Pat? And so you should stop listening to the Department of Finance, Pat, and get up and listen to the world, see what's going on, man. I think the danger for... Ireland, and I'm not advocating a position here, I'm merely trying to explain the world as I see it. To, to that extent, um, I suppose I'm relying on you know reporting, which includes it, the Department of, uh, of Finance amongst its uh, sources, but it's obviously not limited to them. But I, David may, may very well be right, but the danger for Ireland is that the, uh, the ECB and the Fed and the capital markets may not agree with him. Just let me, let me finish that point, which, uh, which is that nobody is talking... Uh, about and of course I'm being slightly facetious with that, just as David was when he was suggesting that you know we can't turn around and say everybody has to reduce their deficits to zero by tomorrow. Nobody is realistically suggesting that. Where I think the policy direction is likely to go, and we can you know talk about the wisdom of this or otherwise, but my best guess as to where the policy direction is likely to go, and if you look at the communications from the Euro Group, which is David says chaired by by Pascal Donahue, is not that you return to the dreaded Maastricht rules and to the fiscal the fiscal compact, which is part of domestic law because it was approved in a referendum in 2012. Um, it, it's not that you do that immediately or even in the first year after a pandemic. But it is that over the medium term, you try and stay within those fiscal parameters, which will require, yes, deficit reduction uh, across the the Eurozone. The pace and extent of that, I suppose, um, is going to be wrangled over in the years to come. But that's where I think it is going. I think, David, you think the, you think those master rules are dead as a dodo. They're gone forever, do you? Is that be right, David? Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. No, no, no. But that, that was, that was, we, we, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think anybody uh, thinks that uh, the economic ideology, I mean, economics is theology, okay? It's not science, it's theology. And it moves like theology. And there are reformations and there's counter-reformations. And it usually stems up from the, from, from the society. Uh, the first thing to, to appreciate is those, those master rules are, rules are dead because imposing those rules means the euro system is dead. 
So, you know, I don't think anyone except the most crazy ideologue would decide that having rules with no system is better than having a system with flexible rules. That's the first thing. The second thing is the world has changed. This is it, guys. The world has changed and it does change. And in the same way as the economics of the 70s was destroyed in the 80s, the economics of the noughties will be destroyed by the roaring 20s. And in the same way as the economics of the 1950s and 60s, uh, all economic ideas have the seeds of their own destruction within them. And I think that uh, what happened in the 1970s is the trade union movement uh, became too powerful. Uh, the bias towards lots and lots of inflation became too overwhelming. And there was an ideological shift at the top in the States and that percolated down into the UK. I think now that the wealth inequality, which is a result of the orthodoxy, is now too wide. And I think uh, the underperformance of the economies is now too profound, as evidenced by two things in the European Union. One is very high levels of unemployment, and the other thing is zero interest rates. I mean, I can't reiterate enough. Zero interest rates are a sign of failure, not success. There are signs that something has gone wrong, okay? And when the price of money falls to zero, it's like, whoa, this is unusual. So the question is, how do we get out of this? How, what do we use now? Do we, again, coming back to Keynes, do we remain hostage to bad ideas? Or do we embrace new ideas? Now, what's very interesting is the United States are embracing and actively accelerating new ideas. And, you know, what I what I would talk, I quote Galbraith to you. You know, Galbraith's this great quote about convention and conventional people, you know. And he says that when faced with the choice between changing his mind or finding the proof not to do so, the conventional man always gets busy looking for the proof. Okay. So I think that what we're caught is in the tyranny of a conventional wisdom, which is over. Now, what the pandemic has done is it's just accelerated the thinking of economics. But I think this was coming. I think this was all coming because, again, what I look at is these great super cycles. So where, where does it leave us? Where does it leave us in Ireland? It leaves us with the choice to either understand the bond market is a very, very, well, the bond market is an incredibly constructive way of borrowing money. And we also know that we can now issue perpetual debt. We can issue 100 year debt. We can do whatever we want because the ECB has said so. And it's also we know that the bias in global economics now will be towards inflation, not deflation. So running the economies hotter, not slower or colder than used to be the case. Now, we in Ireland, we can opt out and we can say, well, you know, we, we're, we're wedded to an old idea uh, and we can do that if we want. But I would suspect that that would uh, miss not only a trick, but it would miss an era that is changing, that we can play part in it. So we say, okay, what do we need public money for in Ireland? Well, in normal cases, we have plenty of money because there's plenty of deposits and those deposits come out of the bank and finance all sorts of things. But it's, that's not happening. So all we do then is we just reconstitute the money supply and we simply borrow money. And I, it seems to me that it's inconceivable that this message is not the message that is actually percolating down to the powers that be, not least because there is no other message. So there are two main points, it seems to me there, Pat. One is 
the danger of conventional thinking of yesterday's men and the Department of Finance, which which David is suggesting. And the other one is, and there seems to be a point of disagreement between the two of you here, uh, or maybe between the Department of Finance and David, on what the likely progress of an attempt to return to the the old fiscal rules within the EU is going to be, be that graduate or immediate, clearly not going to be immediate, but that there's a desire or an ability to return to them. David says that's not going to happen. Uh, Obviously, the people you're talking to in the Department of Finance think it is to some degree going to happen. David may well be correct that that proves to be unsustainable. But what I think is that it is going to happen over uh, over the coming years. And, you know, remember, this is the, the EU and the ECB that we are talking about. As David critiqued at the time, it was perfectly clear that the austerity that was the response to the last great crisis was self-defeating. But it is also true that it, it was carried through and notwithstanding you know, the long-term damage and the social pain and the consequences for ordinary people in their lives, it was carried out. And in this country, on its own terms, to repair the national finances, it was successful, albeit that it was not successful for very many people who were hurt by consequences of it. So just because, you know, it is a policy that many people feel unwise are unsustainable at the time doesn't mean that it will not be prosecuted uh, by the Commission and, uh, and, and by the ECB. I'm not, you know, interested in having an economic debate with David because, as we can see behind him uh, on the Zoom call, all his books are about economics, whereas all mine are, <laughs> all mine behind me are about are about politics. What I'm more interested in is what it means in policy terms, not just at a European level, but more particularly for this country over the coming years. And I can see a danger in continuing to borrow, not specifically for capital projects, but continuing to run a large current deficit. I can see a danger in this country that our budgets become unsustainable or are judged by the those external sources, whether they be European authorities or the bond markets. They are judged by them to be unsustainable because we know what it is like in the country to not be able to find external sources of borrowing. It means you accept whatever terms and conditions on offer for an emergency rescue. And that wasn't pleasant for any of us. To bring a bit of politics into the economics of the discussion, David, is it, is it useful at all to make a distinction between ongoing current spending, the wages you pay to civil servants and teachers, um, social welfare payments, all those kinds of things on the one hand, and sort of major capital infrastructure investment in the other. I mean, you've written regularly over the last few months um, about, you know, major projects the state should consider undergoing. I'm a conventional man, so some of them seem bonkers to me. A high-speed train to Derry makes no sense to me at all, but, you know, each each to their own. But is there a real difference between one and the other from a from a fiscal and economic point of view that you just got to if you just go and borrow the money and go and build a thing which yeah. you and your children and your grandchildren have or if you commit to paying something indefinitely into the future be that a wage or a higher wage or whatever it might be i, I think there's there's always uh moralism in economics and uh it has always been uh seems to be like an auto de fe 
that uh, spending on a bridge is better than spending on a person. I frankly can't understand that because I actually believe that what where all great economic innovation ideas come from is this little thing between our ears called the human brain. Bridges don't build economies. Infrastructure doesn't build economies. Innovation builds economies. Innovation is the spark of creativity that makes the whole thing tick. So I've always been a little bit skeptical, even as a kid working in the central bank, because I, you know, I, I trained in this school. I trained the Naholia Folies of these places. You know, uh, I always was a little bit skeptical of this idea that, you know, bridges good, people bad, which is in effect what you're saying. Uh, and I don't actually think that's the case. I think that uh, what is not unforgivable, because everything's forgivable, but what would be really uh, a terribly bad outcome for us was if the world was changing in the way in which I believe it is, and if economic policy was changing the way I believe it is. So, for example, the Americans have now, think about this, the Americans are now giving out checks to people in the post for doing nothing, Right. Now imagine this is the United States. This isn't North Korea or, or, or Stalinist Russia. This is the United States, right? And what it realizes is that unless and until the United States comes to terms with trying to squeeze uh, inequality, it's going to have a very, very tumultuous political backdrop. Okay, so even the states are doing it, right? Here in Ireland, you know, a high-speed rail to Derry may be a good thing. Who, who knows? Who knows? But I, I mean, what you can never do is uh, take the view that all bridges good, people bad. I think that's really silly. Uh, and then, of course, you have to figure out what the competitive, and this is the bigger thing, what is the competitive impact of expanding public sector salaries? It is over and above productivity. It's very, very dangerous. I, I, I get that. What is the competitive problem about inflating the economy more than it can cope, well, then you get rapidly increase in inflation. We see this in the housing market. It's very dangerous. So what I believe is that there is no ex post rule that is essentially bulletproof when it comes to economics, and a huge amount of discretion is necessary. But the discretion can only come against the background of what is actually the changing dynamic of economics and so to come back to our previous crises, they were always uh, against the background of central banks whose bias was that governments are bad and we should take funding away from them. We now have moved into a new paradigm when central banks are actively saying not only are not governments bad, but in fact governments should spend more. So we're actually in a completely different dispensation. In terms of personalities, you can't get as different personalities as Trichet, who uh, Pat will remember was very much Mr. Austerity, uh, and Christine Lagarde, who's now actually saying, well, you know what? What I would like to do is I'd like to expand a Green New Deal by directly financing green projects with invented money. And this is the whole idea. Remember we started the idea, it isn't an Easter egg hunt, right? There isn't a pot of money that is finite. Otherwise, why would one, if you just take this statistic, one dollar in every five that has been printed ever has been printed in the last 18 months, okay? There is no financial constraint. What there is is an inflation constraint. 
And that, I think, is what we should be focusing on. And if, if a podcast like this could do anything, it would be to say to the Department of Finance, look, you're right to have your rules, but you're just looking at the wrong targets, right? That your target should be the ultimate inflation in this society, not your debt GDP ratio, not your budget deficit, okay? Because at rates of interest of zero, they don't matter, right? But your ultimate one, so keep your target, because everyone needs a target, but change it and go to inflation. And then we can all recalibrate and say, okay, now we're talking about the new world. But I fear, and I really do fear this, that we will, in Ireland, because of a variety of, of, of historical legacies that Pat alluded to, and they're all real. And again, you know, people's careers are nothing more than, you know, all the experiences that they went through. And if you went through all these traumatic experiences, then clearly you're going to be affected by them. But what would be, I think, a really progressive place and an interesting place to end up would be to say, do you remember inflation targeting that we had in the 1950s and 60s in Europe? We're going to go back there. And that's going to be our target. And that's going to be the anchor around which policy uh, orbits. And I think that would be a great place to end. And I, but actually, by the way, that's where America's going. And we will go there eventually. It's just a matter of getting there. Pascal Donoghue announced the setting up of a commission. Never, 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 never the sort of announcement that causes the blood to run faster through the veins in, in Ireland. But, you know, it is supposedly addressing some of these questions about what the right balance is between expenditure and taxation in Ireland um, over the over the next few years. Do you see anything meaningful coming out of that? Or I suppose also, I, I also wonder with what David describes, there's a, there's a running implication that there is a permanent establishment to government here which really makes these decisions but politics does come into it and Fine Gael has a certain kind of a USP a certain brand which is associated with certain kinds of ideas about good husbandry of the economy fixing things after these profligate Fianna Fáilers have you know have thrown everything out the window and that kind of that's part of their message as well is it so I wonder would that impact on their ability to take on board some of the ideas that David's talking about there. You are right, Hugh, that Fine Gael has that self-image. In fact, I, I remember, it wouldn't have been this time last year, it could even have been the year before when the first controversy about overspending at the children's hospital emerged. And Regina Doherty, who I think was a minister at the time, went on radio to defend Fine Gael's stewardship of, of this and uh, and other uh, fiscal matters. And, and she said that Fine Gael's problem was that it was too careful with the public money. Now, <laughs> I remember writing about it at the time and, and wondering how these two thoughts could coexist, perhaps a mark of genius. But uh, it, it is true that that in the, within the culture of Fine Gael, which, as with any political party, means more to its own tribe than it does in the external political debate. The truth of it is that Fine Gael in the latter half of the last government and in this government has behaved in budgetary terms largely like a conventional social democratic party. That is, it's given largely healthy finances. It hasn't sought to cut taxes. It has sought at budget time to increase uh, expenditure, both capital and current. And it has responded to the current 
crisis in line with the, uh, you know, the renewed Keynesian orthodoxy displayed by governments everywhere, which is to borrow uh, in, in times when the private sector shrinks to fill, uh, fill the gap, as, as, uh, as David uh, could tell us. But my perhaps certainly more rudimentary than David's uh, understanding of Keynesianism always suggested to me that there was there was two parts to it. There was certainly the advice for the state to expand, to fill the gap when the private during private sector uh, recessions, so as to alleviate the social cost of those recessions. But that it also included in the time where the economy was growing strongly that the role of uh, of the state would retract, and that I think is going to be one of the very interesting things that we see as we come out of the recession, because we come out of the the pandemic and the the associated economic effects of it with a much bigger state than we went into it. And there is going to be a debate as to how that state is paid for. And I think that's the kind of really interesting bit, rather than, you know, David and I wrangling over macroeconomic theory, but that's going to be the really interesting political discussion that this country has to to have over the next year or two. And I think it'd be really interesting to see uh, and I'll just finish up this point. It'd be very interesting to see what Sinn Féin, now the main opposition party and gunning to lead the next government, what their position on those questions of how the state should be financed. Because the manifesto that Sinn Féin presented for the last election would certainly favoured an expanded public sector, uh, you know, greater capital spending, things like housing and, uh, and health care. But it proposed to pay for those things by uh, increasing taxes on business and getting rid of tax breaks for business, getting rid of tax breaks for pensions uh, and so forth. So I think it'll be really interesting to see, does this next phase in those discussions about politics and about political economy, to what extent they are altered by the ideas and, and the observations that David makes are how much they are constrained by a previous orthodoxy, which suggests over the medium term, the state has to pay for itself. It can't just borrow all the money. All very interesting. And and, and indeed, the, the politics of this, David, and this is going to be a last question to you. I find the politics of this fascinating because it breaks up the traditional old left-right divides. You see traditionally conservative parties, including the Republicans in the United States and uh, to some extent the you know the conservatives in the in the United Kingdom, you know, looking at significant investment in a way that, that they certainly didn't do over the last thirty or forty years and being being less concerned about deficits. And everything gets thrown up a bit in the air. And in a way Pat talked about the sort of traditional kind of social democratic position. That's something that's just crumbled. The old centre, centre right and centre left are under pressure from from new ways of thinking. But I do think because I when I when I listen to you and read you, I think of you as fundamentally an economic liberal, uh, somebody who values the central role of, you know, of um, of creative entrepreneurship and new ideas in terms of keeping an economy alive and creating, you know, ec- economic energy and creating jobs and, and all that kind of stuff. And there is a there is a part of this discussion, which I think Pat said at the very start, you know, there's been a there's been a swing towards the left. And if you do have a much larger state in the Irish context, for example, some of the things which you hold valuable, as as I, as I understand it, 
could have could have some trouble surviving. I mean, we know from the history of the Irish state that there are a lot of very powerful segments, be they the professional classes or the builders or the developers or financial services or public sector trade unions, which are very good at getting to the trough first. And there are other parts of Irish society, the young generation rent, uh, less well-paid, precarious workers and, and others who aren't or who get elbowed aside very easily. And, you know, this thing could work out quite badly from your point of view uh yeah well uh, you know lots of things can work out badly uh, and lots of things can work out well i mean you know in terms of what makes economies tick it's not Keynes or friedman or anything. it's it's this this shunterian economics that i believe in which is that these these what, what do you call about these relentless gales of innovation right of creative destruction so for example if a product is not good it will be deposed by some other product. I actually look at the economy much more like evolution than like physics, right? That it's actually a living organism. And the incipient dynamic behind this is a living evolutionary trait towards better products, towards better services. And basically the market acts like the, evil, the, the environment, right? So I, I, I completely understand that unless you have a vibrant creative private sector, unless you have a vibrant, creative, energetic, innovative sector, you will have no economy. And and, and of course, the communist countries are the best example of that, that, that ultimately, because they couldn't generate the choice necessary and they couldn't generate the dynamism necessary because they believed that people at the top should orchestrate and pick and choose winners. And in actual fact, that's not the way the world works. The world is a great, I believe, uh, game of trial and error and tinkering around. So that's, if, if I have a philosophy in life, that's it, or, or the economy. But I also think two things can be true at the same time which is you take a country like Denmark, which has got an incredibly energetic private sector and an unbelievably productive and generous and kind public sector. You take, I've just been off the, off the phone. The reason I was late here, I was talking to, uh, doing an event for a Swedish company. The Swedes have an extraordinary, extraordinarily dynamic private sector and, and ruthless in the American sense of the world. And it's a shareholder capitalist system. And yet on the other hand, we know over the last 40 or 50 years, they have produced, you know, the envy of the world in many areas, okay, in terms of social policy. So I believe that two things can be true at the same time, and that in actual fact, a properly functioning economy can be highly creative and highly protective towards those who are exposed, which is why I believe that at the moment, there is an extraordinary opportunity been presented by the confluence of fiscal and monetary policy and by the change of attitudes at the top of the ECB to allow Ireland to fix some things that were, for example, the housing problem, and to do this with public money. Now, it doesn't mean that the public sector actually goes and builds it, but it goes and finances it. The quid pro quo of this, Hugh, is a, an explicit uh, targeting of the interests of the land holding sector of this economy. Land is, you know, remember I talked about creativity. Land is not creative. You can either use it or hoard it. You can't do anything else. Land doesn't generate any wages, any ideas, any product. It is just a cost. And what we have done over, I mean, Pat will be much more eloquent in this than I am, over a hundred years is favored the interest of land hoarders. So, I mean, 
these are the sort of, I mean, Napoleon said to govern is to choose, right? You've got to make choices. You can't do it all. But I don't think that a responsible state that takes advantage of zero interest rates to fix infrastructure is the same thing as a state that targets the creative genius of its people. It can do this, but only if it supports the interests of landholders, which is where our status quo, I believe, unfortunately lands. But I'm very optimistic about the future. I'm optimistic that some political parties or some ideology or, or some theology will, will, will emerge quite soon and identify that land holding is the problem. And once you fix that, I mean, again, I come back and we'll conclude, Ireland is still the least densely populated country in Western Europe, with the exception of Norway. Okay, So Ireland is the least densely populated country in Western Europe with the highest land prices. It's a scam. That's the answer. Fix the scam and we move on. I'd like to thank David for proving what I think of as Linehan's theory of political podcast discussions, which is the discussion should be deemed to have come to conclusion when Sweden, Denmark and Norway are mentioned in the same paragraph. So thanks very much indeed to, to, to David and also to Pat for joining us today. Thanks also to our producer, Jennifer Ryan. We will be back in your feed very soon, but do remember that you can mail us with your thoughts and questions at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. So until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 